Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Faraday. Faraday is basically my favorite clothing store that exists. I thought I was finding this undiscovered gem in a tiny little mall in California and Palisades Village. Anyway, I went into Faraday one day and like freaked out and I've been following them ever since. Um, I love their clothes and so does my husband, Kyle. And you can enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y and get 25% off on their website, FaradayBrand.com. F-A-H-E-R-T-Y-B-R-A-N-D.com. I kind of hate to tell you all about Faraday because <laughs> I kind of liked being in the know and like having my own secret stash of clothes, but it's amazing and you will love them, especially their new cozy fall sweaters, which I've been wearing on Instagram and um, their pants, which have like the maternity band type thing up top and fit everybody. Uh, their shirt dresses, their shirt slash jackets for guys. Anyway, they're amazing. Enter code Zibby, get 25% off. I have done this now a couple of times and really have to stop. So anyway, please order. Faria Roizen is an Australian-Canadian multidisciplinary artist whose most recent book is called Like a Bird. She works primarily as a writer, editor, podcaster, a visual artist, and an actress, and is based in Brooklyn. With an interest in her wellness, Muslim identity, race, self-care, pop culture, and film, as well as queerness and how that intersects with being a femme of color navigating a white world, she has written for the New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Vice, Fusion, Village Voice, and others. She's also written the self-care column of The Hairpin, an astrology column for them, and the writer-at-large and culture editor for The Juggernaut. From 2012 onwards, she co-hosted the podcast Two Brown Girls, a podcast that centered brown and black voices in film and TV, emphasizing the importance of representation. In 2016, she co-hosted a podcast for the Toronto Film Festival entitled Yo Adrian, which aired for one season. She published her first book, How to Cure a Ghost, as well as a journal on femme and non-binary body empowerment entitled Being in Your Body in 2019. And now, Like a Bird is out, as well as her first book of nonfiction, Who is Wellness For? on Radical Wellness, which is coming out next year, or 2022. She is the director of Studio Ananda, a space of cultivation and archive for radical anti-colonial wellness, and she writes a weekly newsletter. Welcome, Faria. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Like a Bird, a novel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Your book was like, I read it at night and I was so dis like disturbed and scared from some of the scenes. Like I loved it. It was gripping and powerful. And then I was like, almost like closing my eyes as some of the things were happening. It was like, it's rough to take. I mean, it was gritty and out there. And I mean, that's like what a good book does, right? It makes you feel. Mm. So why don't you tell listeners what it's about? I mean, it's funny and close under close inspection, you know, it's, it's, it's about so much more than just, I guess the broad strokes, like it's a survivor's story. You know, it's a story about this young biracial girl is gang raped by a family friend. And it's really in that lurching from her family, being disowned by her family, that she 
she realizes that she actually has a lot more autonomy than she ever thought she did. And that for me is such a personal story as well. I think a lot of women probably relate to that experience of, of being raised a certain way and thinking certain things about your capacity and who you are and how you should be defined and, and, and what determines you. And then you go out into the real world and you're like, oh, I have all of this that I can actually find and discover about myself. So it's all of those things, but it's also the cracking of a family and the rupture that happens when I think people don't talk about their emotions and when they don't talk about the gravity of what they're feeling and experiencing in a day-to-day way. You know, there's a lot of themes that might sound kind of out there, but they're also really real, like um, ancestral trauma. You know, this idea of epigenetics, it's something I really wanted to bring in just even as a subtle motif, because again, it's something I think about so much, you know, like some of us do become bearers of a burden, a familial burden, and we don't even know what it is that we're experiencing. Wow. And this particular family has gone through so much trauma in a relatively short period of time. The scene where you have the mother when the main character is leaving after she's been cast aside and you have the mom like wailing left alone with like her two daughters without them. I mean, it's Mm. like, I mean, that it's, that was so powerful. I know I keep saying the same thing. I'm sorry. It's, no. <laughs> I mean, I know you know it's terrible, and but I'm just reiterating. It's important to hear this, honestly. It's very validating. <laughs> Tell me, so how closely does your background align with your characters? Not at all, really. Like, I mean, I'm of South Asian descent, and obviously that's something that, I mean, Tilly, the character, her mother is half Jewish American, and her father is half Bengali Indian. And that was also something I really wanted to explore because, again, like the failures of assimilation and the failures of like wanting a life that you think you deserve and you do deserve, but then what is lost in all of all of that, you know, what what happens in that transaction when you do prioritize certain things about what your family looks like, what, you know, what the facade looks like, as opposed to what is going on internally. And her parents are so cool. You know, that's, that's something I really wanted to show. Like Catherine and Addie are both like really smart people. They're very cultured. They have taste. They want to see the world, you know, like Catherine is political. She, she married her husband, even though her parents didn't want her to, because she believed in her beliefs. You know, she, she wanted expansion. She wanted to see what was outside. And then she married him. And because they kind of, I think like, I don't know, signed on to the same contract of like living a lie together or something that, that there is this like another rupture that I really, I think is so important. It's such an important facet of the story that I don't think we ever talk about when like parents who are people don't know what to do with themselves. It's so true. You were so funny writing about her mom. You wrote, like many white girls, even Jewish ones, mama wanted to cause her Ashkenazi parents deep distress. <laughs> she watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with a sadistic reverie and preached to her friends that the racial divide was the true abomination in American society, ignorant to the fact that her white girl utopian idealism was a privilege in and of itself. She considered herself a savior and thought her protests were enough. <laughs> <laughs> love it <laughs> oh you know God. like it's 
It's, it's, I mean, I, I like the, that you like the humor because I wanted it to be funny as well, because we are such like humans are so funny. We're so strange. We have so many contradictions and, you know, it's not like Tilly is the victim. Everybody's the victim. And that's something that I really also wanted to show. And that's something definitely I can, I can attest to in my own life. Maybe the similarities between me and the family is that I had a pretty traumatic life. And I think that's actually kind of common, you know, like we experience so much more than what we're willing to put into language and, you know, like really trying to see them through the lens of humor and trying to place them contextually that's honest in a way that's honest was really, really important to me. I didn't want it to seem like they were two dimensional. Like that's also why, like in the end of the book, there's a return to the idea of memory and what is memory. Can we trust it? You know, like she, she starts to replay these ideas of these memories that she has of her mom and ideas that she has of her mom. And I thought that that was just like, even writing them, I was just like, this is, I've never seen this anywhere before. You know, that questioning of like, do I have this right? You know, did, did she love me? Maybe, I don't know, you know? And that was really fun and heartbreaking to play with. As someone who feels like she's losing her mind every day, this is very comforting to hear because I'm always like, wait, I'm sure this is what happened when I was growing up. And then, of course, I'm like, mm. well, maybe I should call my brother and just find out. And, of course, I'm like completely wrong. <laughs> wow. But it's close enough, you know? I'm like, yeah. this happened with this girl on this Valentine's Day? And yeah, no. <laughs> anyway. You know, you were all you also poked fun at these poor parents when you were talking about how they achieved a new class, essentially, right? They had become wealthier throughout their sort of not hippy dippy, but what's the right word? Very, very liberal anti-wealth dogma. And then suddenly they're wealthy, but they're they don't want to accept that about themselves because what would that mean to their whole identity? And so they kind of pretend that they're not, and yet, you know, they're like <laughs> live in the high life in some regards. And, you know, I don't know. I thought that was very funny because there's so much of that. I feel like now that, you know, you have to wonder with every, all this anti-wealth sentiment everywhere. Well, if, if you had, if you won the lottery tomorrow, would you still be, would this still be the same rhetoric or would it shift a little bit? Exactly. Yeah. And capitalism is a really, you know, especially right now, it's like something that we're all thinking about. I was raised by a Marxist. I was raised by a very intense Marxist and, he (laughs) so he's like very anti-wealth and that's how I was raised but like I have a lot of family members that are really rich and like you know you're always navigating and seeing you know how they interact with their wealth and oftentimes there is like this yeah I mean deep uncomfortability with (laughs) with the, the things that they've achieved I can say that about my own life I have a good life you know I'm an artist I'm a writer like I did this on my own so I think I feel more you know vindicated by that but there are those contradictions that we all have to face. And that's really what the book is trying to get you to do. It's trying to make you question yourself and question the way that you live your life. And it's also not the kindness of strangers, but but how that there's such capacity, whereas there's such capacity for these hateful, horrific acts, there's equal capacity for love and caring and how, I'm, I always forget everybody's names in books, but you know, the coffee shop owner takes her in not only to give her a job, but into her actual home. And mm. then 
is it Kai who comes into the store and then offers her a place to live as well, having just met her and saying like, mm. it looks like you need a friend. I mean, these are really wonderful things. And I think it's important that you highlighted those too, as opposed to just mm-hmm. like this tale of doom and gloom, because that is what's so crazy about the world that you can have these diametrically opposed responses to the same person, essentially. Exactly. And that is, again, like another another reflection that I definitely had in my own life. Like I moved here when I was, I moved from Australia when I was 19 to New York and didn't know anybody, came, came to go to school. I was very naive, very vulnerable and met so many people that lended me a hand in one way or another. And after having such a traumatic sort of almost loveless upbringing, I really needed that. I really needed to believe that there were people out there that could offer me things that I felt were just like too big, you know? And, and that's, that's something again, like I think she tries to explore the guilt and the shame of taking things, of wanting things, of wanting safety. You know, there's a lot of shame around that because you think that because you've never gotten it, maybe that's just how your life is going to be. And then when someone offers you a hand, it's like, it causes you to question everything that you've accepted before that moment. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, like I know that it probably seems quite dramatic, but those like those things that that happened to Talia, like have all in one way or another happened to me and I negotiate them as an adult all the time, you know, and like the, like the sexual violence didn't happen like that, but sexual violence has happened to me in my life. And like, I am constantly having to balance like those extreme moments with joy and community and, and, and real care, you know, that, that to me is, is the plight of being human, as you kind of said. Wow. So really just some tiny minor themes here in your book, (laughs) nothing too, nothing too deep. Did you have a relationship with a tree in the same way? (laughs) I have, I have relationships with trees for sure. I, I mean, I'm definitely a little bit of a kook I'd say, but like, you know, I, I do a lot of plant medicine. So like trees are really, you know, they're really important. I really think that they have so much, the, the natural world has so much to teach us that again, like it is kind of like this like sweet sentiment that I wanted to bring out. But like, yeah, when I was young, I didn't have a lot of friends that I could lean on. So the natural world became my friend, like sticks and stones, you know, like whether it was like a little patch on the grass that I knew was mine, you know, that kind of stuff. You really do, especially when you don't have a lot, you find ways to protect yourself, you know, totems pretty close to actually a totem pole really in form and shape and <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know. exactly well my heart breaks that you experience some of the same things and emotions because the experience of this character why can i not talia broke my heart over and over again so that sort of devastation and loneliness really was really tough and i'm sorry if that was part of your upbringing and that's not fair and that just stinks honestly yeah, I had a really bad life. I had a really hard life for for a really long time. You know, I'm a survivor. I'm a child abuse survivor. So like all of those things come from deep, deep places that I don't even think that, I mean, I, I don't know if you knew this. I wrote this book over 18 years. I started writing it when I was 12. So I actually wrote myself out of my pain. And I mean, through a therapist, I've kind of figured out that I was essentially creating this, like, even though it wasn't my life, 
completely, I was creating a story as a way to sort of have a cathartic process, you know, like I didn't, my family, you know, we didn't know what therapy was, you know, we didn't know, like none of those things were options to me 18 years ago. So for whatever reason, I figured out at a young age that I could do this, that I could, I had to survive, that I had something to say. And that's like really what carried me through. And I don't even know how I did it, but I did it. Oh my gosh. Well, bravo to you. I mean, that's amazing. When you said you started this 18 years ago, I was like, you must have written this when you were five years old. Like, I'm thinking like, are, did you start this as a drawing? Like you look so young and everything. But well, I think you might win the award then for longest time it's ever taken anyone to write a novel. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because like when you write something, when you work on something for so long, and also I think naturally who I am, I'm very self-critical. You know, that's why it's validating to hear that you like the book because I don't know, you know, I don't know if anyone's reading this book. Like it's just, it is such a, it becomes such an isolating experience when you put something out. Cause you're just like, I, I hope for the best. And you know, here's all of my pain and trauma on the page that, you know, I'm trying to like also show people that survivorship is real and possible, but you question yourself, you know, and, and especially after this long, you're like, is this story even good? And yeah, it's like an everyday process of reminding myself that at least I stuck to something for 18 years. Like if, if that's all I have, that's pretty remarkable. And I, and I always have to kind of, yeah, just like pat myself on the back for that. Cause I don't really know how I did it. So it turns out it started on a floppy disk (laughs) (laughs) and you put it on like a CD-ROM and now you finally have it on your phone. Google drive. Google drive. The evolution. The evolution. evolution. Like a bird actually started a baby bird. Now it's grown and flown away. (laughs) Oh, I love it. <laughs> exactly. So did you, no, seriously, did you, so did you start by handwriting this or like, tell me about like, and how did you end up deciding like now is the time? Like you're still only 30. You could have done another 18 years on it. And yeah. It would have been justified. I know. Yeah. So yeah, I started writing it on hand and then eventually I think when I was maybe a couple of months later, we had like a family computer and I, and I think I was talking to my dad about it, who's a professor. He was like, well, if you, you should start typing it, you know, and with his direction, I started typing it and I would show him the pages and just be like this, this, I, I, I have a really close connection with my dad. And so I was always looking for his, I guess, approval. And then, yeah, 18 years later, it's a book. It's a 300 page book. So much work has gone into it. But the evolution is like, I started when I was 12. I finished just a first draft when I was 15, that it's just like more of a, it was more of a basic, simple draft. Like all of the things are basically the same, which is wild. But yeah, it, I finished it when I was 15. Did you lose a, a sibling? Mm-hmm. Everything, oh. everything. I didn't personally lose a sibling. No, no, no. Thank oh. God. I was around a lot of death, you know, and like, it was a really palpable thing for me to think about death, like around the time that I started writing this, my, my favorite grandfather died. So I think I was just, yeah, being faced with a lot of death and it makes sense to me in the, in the universe of Talia to, to have something that triggers her into motion. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the rape. The rape isn't what triggers her. It's this, that's the last straw for her. She's just like, no, fuck this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. It's really the loss of her sister and, and, and trying to compute why somebody would do this that brings her to the to her own evolution. But yeah, and then I and then I sort of formally started writing this book again when I was in my early 20s. So I've been kind of working on it more full time for about 8 years. I mean, it's so crazy to think. Like when you were 12, you were writing this. And when I was 12 in my journal, it's like I slow danced with Chris McFerrin. <laughs> I love that. I now I feel like horribly guilty for having these like ridiculously middle school like traditional privileged you know ups and downs and and then this is going on in your head it's just insane and yet here we are as adults just having a normal conversation and what you bring to it what I bring to it. I'm not to say I haven't had lots of trauma in my life it's just not at that young age mm. early and then the way that that informs how you grow up and what you do mm-hmm. with your life is so important so mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, don't, don't you think that we all, I mean, I don't know if this is how you feel, but like we all become products of our lives, you know, like we, we make choices. We, I don't know, at a certain point, I think like maybe you did this as well, but I wanted a better life. So I fought for it. And I think like the things that happened to me, my therapist might disagree, but like I've come to a place of a, a, a lot of peace. Like it brings me pain, but it's still, I have a lot of peace with my life and because I wouldn't be who I am if I, I didn't go through it. And I like who I am a lot, you know? And like the fact that I can write this book again, you know, I'm being, you know, clownish and like light. I obviously want people to read it and I obviously want people to connect with it. And that is my offering, you know, like sourcing all this pain and putting it onto a page so people can have a toolkit or they can, you know, like if, Every survivor is able to read this book and there's a lot of survivors in this on this planet. Like that would mean so much to me because I think it is really from my heart, it's been written to aid people through this journey. It's beautiful that you did that. I feel like Thank I should you. put a theme song to this episode that's like, <laughs> I'm a survivor. Destiny's Child. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, Destiny's Child. Thank you for not stopping the singing. That's my first singing on a podcast ever and my last. <laughs> it's great. Oh, so what's coming next for you? In 20, let's see, 2038. Well, we have your next novel. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm working on another novel, which I'm really excited about. It's, I mean, it's still really early stages, so I won't talk about it actually. But I'm also writing a book of poetry called Survival Takes a Wild Imagination. And then I have my fourth book that comes out January 2022 or spring 2022 about the wellness industrial complex. It's my first nonfiction so I'm kind of diving into, again, like the things that we're talking about, you know, trauma and my own experience and rooting it in my own experience, but also looking at the failures of the wellness industrial complex and how like we very much owe it to one another to care more about one another. And especially in this climate and everything that's happening and where the world is going, you know, with climate change. So yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting, I think. So those are my two major book projects that are coming up. And then the novel, I think, in a couple of years. So stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I'm writing, I'm writing some screenplays 
as well. So wow, a lot of things are happening. That's great. Well, that's, that's great as they should. I mean, you deserve nothing but success having, especially having taken what was so painful for you and given it as you said, as an offering to others, you know, I hope that the circle of sort of life sort of gives back to you what you needed from it. And it's just great. Sure. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Trust your voice. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have something to say. If you feel like you do really trust it and nurture it and read, read a lot. You know, like I think enough writers or enough people don't read. Like we, we do need to read more. <laughs> I know that your podcast is about that. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Not enough people read. <laughs> I actually read some crazy statistic recently how like the average American like reads one book every two years. I probably just botched that statistic. So nobody quote me on this or write it down or even just pretend you didn't hear me say that, but it's something like that. Like people hardly, a lot of people hardly ever read and a lot of people don't even own a lot of books or any books. I just like donated some books to this school in Texas and none of the kids had ever owned a book before and were writing me all these thank you notes. Like, what? oh my gosh, I get to take it home. I get to keep it. And it's amazing. Yeah. I get more notes like every day from this school. Anyway, so, and then I feel like, you know, I'm surrounded by books and they're like how I stay sane and they've helped me through everything that I've ever gone through in my life. And mm-hmm. I think, wow, you know, I have these talismans of stories and experiences and I just look and I remember them and, you know, now I ha- I'll have yours, you know what I mean? Like, and then it just brings it all back. And anyway, mm-hmm. yes. So I think people should make time for books and, and find ways to get books in everybody's hands. So, I mean, uh... I, I love that sentiment. I think that we, reading is just, reading is how I survived. I, I, if I couldn't have gone into different universes, I don't know what I would have done with myself. So absolutely, I, it breaks my heart that people, that young kids don't have access to that. You should, by the way, I was going to say this earlier, not that it's any of my business, but you should go to schools. I don't know if you're doing that or not, but you should like put yourself on the school circuit and go in and have Mm. talks and like go to middle schools and you never know what's Mm. going on with people during that time. And they might mm-hmm. really need to hear it in the moment. So I think you should try to target. I know it's it's a lot, this book, but I think you should do it. I think you should try a few schools and see what happens. Because I think you'll be surprised at how much you'll be able to affect change at that level. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to listen to that. Okay. Just my two cents, you know. For yeah. What it's worth. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, this has been unexpectedly fun. I thought this would be <laughs> so deep and, and disturbing and you know intense. And so I think I had to lighten it up a bit as like self-protection or something for both of us. But anyway, thank you. This book was beautiful. Your writing style is beautiful. And when you said you weren't sure people were going to read it or whatever, I found your writing style to be something that was so captivating and a little bit different and a unique voice. And so I just kept reading and reading and I really liked it. So there you have it. (laughs) Thank you, Sibby. Thank you for having me on your podcast. All right. Thanks for coming. (laughs) I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Keep me posted. Keep me posted on, you know, the meaning of life and everything. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Thanks so much to Faraday Brand for being my sponsor this week. FaradayBrand.com. Enter code Zibby for 25% off. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.